It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. By the way, you can get us, uh, you can see us, listen to us, Monday through Friday on Fox Business Network, FBN. The name of the show is Kudlow. It plays from 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't get us at 4, you can text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And even if you miss that, you can catch us on a replay at uh, 7 to 8 p.m. on Fox Business. So you got that. Here, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, plays throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. So there's really no excuse for not hearing the show. We've got a bunch of headlines to deal with. Uh, First up is going to be a warning on the economy from yesterday's jobs report. It's not near as good as you'd think. We're also going to talk about the House elections former Speaker Newt Gingrich at the half hour. A war in Israel has broken out. Hamas attacking Israel. I wonder how much of the $6 billion the Bidens gave to Iran is going into this war. And uh, the Trump trials continue in New York and elsewhere. All about real estate, market valuations, utter nonsense. Put Trump away. <laughs> Put him away for 750 years. That's Joe Biden's rallying cry. So we'll talk about all this as the show proceeds. I want to begin with um, I want to begin with the economy. Yesterday was a big jobs number. Uh, the top line non-farm payrolls: 336,000 jobs in September, which is a hefty number. But is it real? Is it real? Well, the answer is be careful. Because if you look under the hood, you're going to find much less positive news. Okay? Much less positive news. If you look under the hood, you will see that... 123,000 people were holding multiple jobs. This is the household survey, which is very important. That thing only went up 86,000, by the way. There are two surveys. There's sort of the corporate survey, which is actually a bunch of econometric modeling. And then there's the household survey, where the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, actually calls families. And I will tell you, at turning points in the economy, the household survey is a better measure. So what you got yesterday, only 86,000 jobs in the household survey, 336 million in the payroll survey. Meanwhile, inside the household survey, full-time employee increases, full-time, actually fell 22,000, fell 22,000. And uh, part-time employees jumped 151,000. So the part-timers provided the bulk of the job gains. That's not good. 
and the full-timers actually fell. And then, as I said, 123,000 more people holding multiple jobs, no doubt because they can't make ends meet. They're living paycheck to paycheck. These are more signs of weakness. So I would be very careful. I would be very careful. Now, here's another point. If you look at the categories of jobs, the biggest gainer was leisure and hospitality. Okay, restaurants and so forth, hotels, plus 96,000. It's by and large uh, low-end paying labor jobs, 96,000. What was the next biggest one? Government. Government. Joe Biden's big government socialism strikes again. That was up 73,000. Healthcare forty one thousand, and then social assistance twenty five thousand. Social assistance is a strange category; it's really government. So, if I take the government seventy three and the social assistance at twenty five, I'm at ninety eight thousand, and that's government, and that was the single biggest increase. So, it was not a, it was not such a fabulous job gain, and uh, I raised that. Because, of course, President Biden was out there crowing about uh, the job numbers. Okay, if I were he, I'd crow too. But again, my job is to take a look at all the factoids, not just cherry-picking the ones. And there's a warning. There's a big warning. And, of course, there are other warnings throughout the economy. For example... Blue-collar workers, production workers in manufacturing, they are back underwater in terms of affordability. You know, what's the day's pay going to buy? So over the past 12 months, their wages went up 4.3%. That's a good number, healthy wage hike. But hours worked actually dropped almost a full percentage point because there is a slump in manufacturing. So income over the past year is only 3.7%. That is equal to the last reading of the CPI, 3.7%. So it's flat. It's flat. And basically, under the Bidens for the past two and a half years plus, the whole issue of affordability, prices have gone up faster than wages in all but I think two or three months. And those two or three months were this year, this spring and summer, uh, that looks like that's over now. Inflation is back up to 3.7. The low is 3.0, as I recall. And uh, the job report yesterday shows these are working folks. These are blue collars. These are manufacturing production workers. They're back flat. And that's why... You know, that's why Biden's economic favorability rating is less than 30%. And his disapproval on the economy is about 60%, approaching 60. Affordability, it's a big issue. It's more important than GDP. Are you better off than you were three years ago? Most folks think they are not better off. Remember, groceries up 20%, gasoline up over 50%. 
Remember Biden's inflationary policies, massive spending and borrowing, manic regulatory policies, war against fossil fuels, reliance on the Saudis and the Russians and the Iranians and the Venezuelans. All those chickens come home to roost. Meanwhile, another affordability problem is home buying. The American dream is falling further and further off the table and out of sight. 30-year mortgages now just short of 8%. They were near 2% three years ago. Housing starts are negative. Existing and new home sales are negative. And prices keep rising. And on the manufacturing front, the supply managers... ISMs have fallen for months and months. Factory orders slumping. There is consumption still going on, but with the slump in uh, real wages, real wages falling again, savings are way down. Savings are way, way down. You have to ask yourself, how long is this fragile economy going to last? My answer is not long. I think the recession forecast for next year, with an upside-down yield curve in the bond market, with the index of leading indicators down 17 straight months, with the M2 money supply collapsing, and with real wages falling, and a housing market in recession I still think the odds of a recession in the next 12 to 15 months are about 65%. Now, I want to make one last point on the economic story. There is some modest growth going on, okay? No question about that. The first half of this year was about 2%. The third quarter, which we'll get... Third quarter, which ended a few days ago, September 30th, we we won't get that until um, about the third week of October this month. But it's going to be a good number; could be three or four percent. Most of that, I'm going to argue, is being driven by business profits. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks and the lifeblood of the economy. Profits. Joe Biden hates profits. He always talks about taxing profits or excess profits. Well, profits have held up very well. In fact, we got some new revisions on profits. And they were stronger than we thought. Ironically, even though Joe Biden hates profits, profits are the backbone of the economy. And guess what? Guess who slashed the tax on corporate profits. Donald Trump, right? From 35% to 21%. Got that done in 2017. It's a permanent reduction. Makes America even more competitive. Makes businesses more competitive. You can't hire new workers or give them the best technology equipment or improve machinery 
or job training unless you got enough money after tax to do it. That's profits. Democrats love jobs. They hate jobs creators. That's always the problem for the Democratic Party. So the irony is it was Trump's corporate tax cut that's given the economy what little growth it has, even though Mr. Biden continues to rail against business. Biden hates business. He's the anti-capitalist. He's the proponent of big government socialism. If he had his way, he would raise taxes on all businesses and successful entrepreneurs. So think about that. Irony of ironies. Meanwhile, I remain concerned about the economy. The job number out yesterday was not near as good as the top line suggests. When you look under the hood, whoops, full-time workers falling, part-time workers rising, people with multiple jobs rising. That is not the sign of a specially healthy economy. We'll take a break here. Just wanted to get that stuff out. We'll be revisiting this with John Carney at Breitbart later on in the show. Stay with us. I'll be right back with much more. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. New York proud. New York loud. With New York attitude. All here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Thousands of rockets rained over the border from the Gaza Strip to kill at least 40. This is a bad story. We'll get to this um, over the course of the show. We have Fox News' Brett Baer probably have some thoughts about this. I will just say one point. You just had this prisoner exchange between uh, the Biden administration and Iran. Why is Iran important? Well, Iran finances Hamas. Hamas is basically a Palestinian terrorist group. Been fighting Israel for, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Gosh knows how much. Constant wars and incursions and whatnot. Anyway, the prisoner exchange, $6 billion went to Iran. $6 billion. For what? Since when do we, first of all, have prisoner exchanges and give them money? It's insane. It violates decades of American foreign policy. Of course, they said, the Bidens and the Iranians both said, it will only go to humanitarian assistance. Oh, nonsense. Money is fungible. You can use it for anything. It came out of South Korean frozen accounts in South Korea. Money was returned, $6 billion. It's, you know, it's reminiscent of what Obama did many years ago when he signed this crazy Iranian peace deal. Peace deal, my keister. All it did was allow Iran more time to develop nuclear weapons. Everybody knows that. And there's also a sidebar story here about Iranian spies and double agents working in the Defense Department, working in the State Department. Crazy stuff. But I don't think this uh, Hamas invasion of Israel 
coming only weeks after the $6 billion transfer of money to Iran. I don't think it's a coincidence. And of course, Israel is a very powerful military, and I, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's such a strong leader, will crush them. As he says, he will crush them. We've seen this movie before. Personally, I know Netanyahu. Actually, Netanyahu's been on this radio broadcast, has been on the TV show many times down through the years. Anyway, we'll keep an eye on this uh, Israeli-Hamas war. And then at the half hour, just a few moments, my good friend Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, is going to talk about the House election and all that goes with it. But, you know, Newt wrote a great column. It's becoming clear that Joe Biden wants to put President Trump in jail. I I think that's a big story. You know, they'd like to tie him up in trials, but I think they'd actually like to jail him. Trump is so far ahead in the polls. He's 40, 50 points ahead in the Republican nominating polls. He's now 5 to 10 points or more ahead of Joe Biden head-to-head polls. Democratic parties are scared to death. Joe Biden is such a bad president that he's going to lose to Trump. So Newt's got some thoughts about becoming clear that Biden intends to put Trump in jail. And Newt will speak about the House elections, who might take this. Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, they're all friends of ours, by the way, good conservatives. I'm Kudlow. We will be back. So much more to talk about today. Please stick around. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we welcome back to the show a very dear friend, Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor. He's written a bunch of books, all of them are bestsellers. The latest book is March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. Newt Gingrich, welcome back, sir. It's great to be with you always. No, we got a whole bunch of things to cover. I need about an hour and a half, but I'm not going to do that to you. By the way, very best regards to Ambassador Kalista. Uh, Newt, can I just talk for a moment this Hamas invasion of Israel, Hamas, the Iranian-backed Palestinian terrorists, and I just wonder, Biden just put together, right, this prisoner exchange gave Iran $6 billion dollars you think any of those $6 billion might have gone into this Hamas invasion of Israel, which comes only a couple of weeks after the prisoner exchange? Is that a coincidence in your judgment? Well, I mean, it may be a coincidence in terms of timing, but look, Iran is clearly the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world. Uh, they are the leading opponent to Israel, and in fact, their hostility to Saudi Arabia has Saudi Arabia on the edge of signing a peace agreement with uh, Israel as a defensive alliance against Iran. So you give them $6 billion and, you know, again, agreeing that the Biden White House is astonishingly stupid. They should really have understood that if I give you $6 billion, you can now take something else you were going to spend money on and turn that into paying either for terrorism or for war. They're not just the leading funder of Hamas, they're the leading funder of Hezbollah in Lebanon 
and Hezbollah probably has over 100,000 missiles aimed at uh, Israel, most of them low-grade, but still, sheer volume matters. And all of that's being done by Iran. Isn't that something that you understand the economics? Money is fungible. Money, yeah, and the Bidens exactly. don't. I mean, well, really? They, no, they don't, they don't understand that? The, no, <laughs> the Bidens have accepted, for whatever reason, Obama came to believe that Iran should be the centerpiece of power in the Middle East. Mm. I mean, he wanted Iran to be the dominant country, whether it's because down deep, deep down he's anti-Israeli or whatever his reasoning. Obama's the original architect of this, and Biden is just carrying out the policy that, that, that Obama started, which was to ignore everything bad that Iran did, give them as much money as you can. I remember that at one point they actually flew cash in, mm. uh, mostly in Swiss and European uh, units because they would not accept American dollars. I mean, imagine you offer a guy a billion dollars. He says, yeah, but not in your currency because I despise you so much. Uh, I'd like you to send me Swiss francs. And they did. I mean, it's just the, the, there's something about the American left that loves the aggressors uh, and that deeply dislikes Israel. I think partly because Israel wins and that violates their sense of being for the underdog. Uh, but uh, it, it's astonishing. It surely is. Well, Benjamin Nadjiao is a tough guy, and uh, well, I have the, confidence in him. Well, I mean, sooner or later they're going to have to destroy Hamas, yep. and sooner or later they're going to have to destroy Hezbollah because they are steadily growing threats to the very survival of Israel. Yep. Coming back home, you've got an op-ed piece. Biden, it's becoming clear, intends to put President Trump in jail one way or another. By the way, Newt, you see this in this New York City trial, this ridiculous trial over real estate values, where the local superior court judge, who is a Democratic uh, partisan, is already threatening to put Trump in jail uh, for exercising speech. <laughs> anyway, um They'll go to any lengths, won't they? They'll go to any lengths to stop Trump. Look, this is a war of survival. They're very much like Erdogan in Turkey. Erdogan understood that if he didn't win this last election, he and his son were going to go to jail for the rest of their lives for corruption. So for them, it was life and death. Well, the same thing here. The left understands that if if Trump wins, having learned everything he's learned in the last eight years, if Trump wins, it's the end of their world. Literally. And and uh, they will do anything to get him. And, and the, the thing people need to realize is <clears throat> when you get these gag orders, a judge technically has the ability to single-handedly issue an arrest warrant based on your violating the judge's gag order. And if, and if you watch, both in Washington and in New York, the gag orders are becoming steadily more restrictive. And now you've got a guy who's running for president who, who's naturally talkative anyway. And you're saying to him, we're now going to tell you what you're allowed to say as a presidential candidate. Uh, and in my mind, he actually is the Republican nominee. It's, I think it's, it's, a de facto, it's, it's de facto. It's not just technically true yet, but for all practical purposes, he's the Republican nominee. And, and in most recent polls, he's actually beating Biden. Mm. So you're the Democrats, and you're thinking, look, if I could be, literally lock him up, put him in orange, put him in, in shackles, not just get a mugshot, because that, that backfired on him. And the mugshot actually helped Trump, which which had to have just drive Democrats crazy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, um, at a minimum, Newt, the thought occurs to me, at a minimum, 
They want to tie Trump up with these trials, make him appear in trials, make him appear in court as much as possible so he can't campaign the way he loves to campaign. And at a maximum, they'll throw him in jail, put an orange suit on. You're exactly right about that. By the by, your point, it's a throwaway point, but after watching the second debate, <laughs> I was out there in Simi Valley covering it for Fox News. Um, really? I mean, it's not that they're bad people, the people on the stage. They're conservatives. They have a lot of ideas. Most of them really probably agree with Trump more than they disagree with Trump. But... As I recall, you came on the show or other shows and you said, do we have to keep doing this? I mean, really? <laughs> Let's devote our resources to defeating Joe Biden. Well, I think there's, there's one survey, for example, where Trump is at 57 and the nearest person is DeSantis at 14. Mm. Now, <clears throat> if you have a 43-point lead, uh <laughs> And the time has come to, to focus all of our resources on beating, not just beating Biden, but winning a big enough majority in the House so we don't shoot ourselves in the head uh, and winning a, a big majority in the Senate. Because the, the real goal, I, I wrote a piece recently and said, the time to celebrate is not the day after the election. It's July 4th of 2025 when we've completed six months of fundamentally restructuring Washington. Mm. And our goal has to be not just to win, but to win with a purpose and to actually implement fundamental decisive change in a system which has grown corrupt and incompetent. Who's got the best, most purposeful policy message right now, Newt, by far? Well, I think Trump does. Sure. I mean, really. Trump, Trump understands that the country... The vast majority of the country wants real change, and the and the polling numbers are staggering. I mean, in in, in both NBC's and and, a, and the White Washington Post ABC poll last Sunday, uh, ABC had 62 percent of Democrats wanted somebody other than Biden. NBC had the number of 59 percent of Democrats. And this is of Democrats. This is not independents or Republicans. And that just tells you we're we're moving into a Jimmy Carter cycle. Uh, where the president gets weaker and weaker, his party gets weaker and weaker, and and despite the the dumb things being done by eight members of the House Republican Party, in the long run, the country's not going to be focused on who the Speaker of the House is. It's going to be focused on gasoline, food, mm. uh, the border, uh, fentanyl deaths, uh, crime in the streets, all, all the things that are in their lives. And on every one of those issues, Joe Biden loses. You know, Newt, I try to capture it. It's about affordability, affordability. Real wages are falling. People can't afford to buy a home, gasoline, groceries. It's all about affordability. Prices are rising faster than wages. You're working more. You know, yesterday's job numbers look good. The top line number looked good. But when you dig into it, the, the people buying, people working multiple jobs, Newt, full-time employees actually fell, full-time employees. Part-time employees rose and people holding multiple jobs rose. What does that tell you? It's paycheck to paycheck. They're scrambling around holding several jobs. That's all about affordability. And that's what Biden does not understand. Well, and I think the only other word I would add is protection. Ah, yes. When you see a congressman get carjacked at gunpoint on mm. Capitol Hill, 
mm. or you watch a flash mob in Philadelphia for several days in a row, uh, or you watch uh, the cartels coming across the border with impunity, uh, you, 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 the average American is thinking, I can't afford my life, and I'm really worried that it's going to get worse. Mm. And I think that's why those, those two words will be the dominant words of, of the 2024 campaign. Hundred percent. Newt, don't leave me. I got to take commercial break. I want to come back. Two uh-huh. points. I want to talk about the speaker's right. race, and I want to talk about Jody Arrington, the House Budget Chairman's balanced budget. Don't leave me, Newt. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We're talking to the great Newt Gingrich, former Speaker, Fox News contributor. Uh, what's Newt's latest book? Hold on a second. I got it. March to the Majority: The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. I'm Kudlow. We got Gingrich. We'll be right back, folks. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to the brilliant Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, Fox News contributor. His latest book is March to the Majority, the real story of the Republican Revolution. Newt, um, appreciate your time this morning, as always. Uh, some quick thoughts on the speaker's race. We have Steve Scalise. We have Jim Jordan, two wonderful people, um, two conservatives. Uh, Mr. Trump has come out in favor of Mr. Jordan, although Trump has said to people he, he likes Scalise, but he's favoring Jim Jordan. What do you make of that race so far, Newt? Well, I think that uh, it, it could be surprisingly close. Scalise, as the majority leader, has some advantages. Uh, and I think Jordan is seen as the more conservative and more aggressive. Uh, so it partly depends on, on where the conference's head is at. I mean, they, they have a, you know, there could also be a third or fourth candidate by the time this is over. The, the key question is not who can win in the conference. The key question is who can get 218 votes on the floor. Because you don't want to go through 15 rounds the way they did with, with Kevin McCarthy back in January. Uh, and you don't want to have a situation where any one or two or three people can can move to vacate the chair, side with the Democrats, and cause chaos. And so they have some serious conversation that they've got to go through uh, to decide whether or not they're really a conference. Or are they, in fact, 96% a conference, which is the vote that, that Kevin got, and 4% people who are willing to destroy anything if they're not happy. Kevin McCarthy's story was a tragedy, absolute tragedy, terrible story. Newt, can you get a rule change on this vacate the chair? Only if you have 218 votes. And and I don't think they have 218 votes to change the rule right now. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, this is a, this is a very serious systemic problem. I, I faced the same thing in 1999 uh, when I had about 19 members who refused to vote for me. That's why I retired at that point. Uh, John Boehner faced the same thing. Paul Ryan faced the same thing. Uh, this is almost a virus inside the party uh, that a relatively small number of people believe they have the right to go and destroy the whole thing uh, unless you keep them totally happy. And their happiness usually requires things that are not possible. Hmm. Yeah, I just never understood the McCarthy thing. I'm texting McCarthy through the whole period. Uh, gosh, what a, what a silly thing. By the way, uh, among all the other policies that McCarthy, I mean, McCarthy supported tough budgets, he supported extending the tax cuts, he supported opening up the oil and gas bigots, he supported border control, 
he wants to be tough and difficult on the Ukraine. All the other stuff. He was a prolific fundraiser, Newt. I mean, a really prolific yeah. fundraiser. Which well, is that's, not that's, nothing. That's gonna, look, that's going to hit them very hard. I, I just did a piece on why they're going to miss MacArthur. Mm. Uh, and part of it is he raised $485 million in the last cycle. Huh. They, they, don't, they don't have anybody who can raise 10% of that amount. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, they're going to realize, President, he also understood the moderates. Remember, the, the party's margin of majority is both the right and the left. I mean, the moderates in New York and in California, uh, people who are sensitive to issues, 19 members who are in districts that Joe Biden carried, uh, you know, you, you can't just have a hard right majority. It's not, it's, it is not possible. And uh, so it'll be interesting to watch and see how they talk to themselves. But my point to everybody who's called and asking for advice is that make sure you can get to 218 and make sure that the members who voted the other day make it, voted with the Democrats give you a commitment. If they're going to be in the room and they're going to help pick the speaker, they need to give you a commitment that they will stick with you hmm. and they will not do this a second time. Otherwise, you ain't got nothing. Right. Well put. Newt, let's go to a slightly different topic. Uh, you've been talking and writing about the need for a balanced budget. Get it back on the policy table, follow through. The budget chair in the House, Jody Arrington, I assume he will remain budget chair no matter what. He has pushed a balanced budget. What can you tell us about that? Well, look, I, I, and this again is an example where, where uh, McCarthy was totally in favor of what Jody Arrington was doing. Jody has done a great job, uh, and he understands exactly the point you've made for 30 years, which is <clears throat> if you're going to balance the budget, you've got to have 3 or 3.5% economic growth. You cannot balance the budget at the current anemic, weak economy. It's not possible. And so he developed a budget which gets to balance in 10 years, uh, and they have reported it out. They passed uh, the budget committee 20 to 14 with all the Republicans voting yes. And, frankly, this, again, is one of those places where you wonder – uh, you know, what, what uh, Ben Dominic called the hateful eight. I mean, what, what were they thinking of? Here's a chance. They said they're fiscal conservatives. Well, here was a chance to bring to the floor a budget that gets us to balance with economic growth, with, with real reforms. Uh, it would be an enormous achievement. And, that, and as you know, because you were there, I'm, I'm the only speaker in your lifetime to balance the budget four straight years. So I, I know how hard this is, and I know that Jody has put this together. I think they're going to move forward on it, and I hope they're going to pass it. Uh, and it becomes a roadmap. If you, if you look at his balanced budget proposal, it's literally a roadmap for reform for the next three or four years. Uh, it gets you economic growth. It gets you dramatically less regulations. It gets you real reform in spending. Uh, and uh, it's a remarkable achievement. On the subject of uh, growth, in your balanced budgets there at the end of the 90s, you forced Bill Clinton into a capital gains tax cut and welfare reform, two very substantial pro-growth measures. And then, lo and behold, Alan Greenspan going up on the Hill testifying, saying, oh, my God, we have these surpluses. I don't know what I'll do with them. <laughs> yeah, so. he, he actually said their projections were uh, that we, we would pay off the national debt by 2009, something we had not done since 1837, and they had no, they had no models for managing uh, the currency if you had no debt. It's true. Uh, yeah, now, unfortunately, the guys who followed me didn't get it and <clears throat> slid back into business as usual. 
and now we have a $33 trillion debt, and we're now paying more interest on the debt than we're paying for national defense. Tell me about Jody Arrington. I mean, I've interviewed him once. I thought he was pretty good, but I don't really know him. Tell us about Jody Arrington. He's very smart. He was a college professor, then he was an administrator. He understands politics, and he understands policy. He's a very serious guy, and he, he understands something which, which nobody in the Biden team understands, and that is that the country literally is at stake and that you, you have to turn around both the size of the federal government and you have to turn around the whole pattern of borrowing and spending. And he is prepared. He's dedicated his career to doing that. He's thought about it a great deal. He's assembled a great team in terms of the staff of the Budget Committee. And he, he listened to everybody. He did, he did it the right way. He listened to everybody got everybody's concerns. And I, and I do want to point out, Larry, that one of, the, one of the hidden things people don't really appreciate that Steve Moore wrote about last week uh, in his newsletter is that we really dramatically reformed regulations. Mm. And regulations in many ways now are a bigger inhibitor to growth than taxes. Yeah. Uh, and so part of what you have to have is a, is a dramatic deregulation and, and taking power away from left-wing bureaucrats uh, and returning power back to the free market and back to the state and local governments. Will uh, with Jody Arrington's balanced budget is he is he going to reform any of the big entitlements? Is that part of the story? He he reforms he reforms everything except Medicare and Social Security, and he correctly points out we don't currently have a political consensus that allows you. And what they provide for is something like the Greenspan Commission under Reagan, right. where you would have a bipartisan group that would report back and would have to have their recommendations taken up without amendment, on a yes-no vote. All right. Newt Gingrich, terrific stuff, absolutely. Former speaker, we love having you come on the show. Newt's latest is March to the Majority, the real story of the Republican Revolution. Thank you, Newt. You're fabulous. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Brett Baer, Fox News chief political anchor, host of the special report with Brett Baer. He's got a new book out about George Washington and the Constitution, and he'll have some things to say about the speaker's race. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. We're going to hustle right into Brett Baer. My friend, Fox News chief political anchor, hosts a special report with Brett Baer. He's doing a lot of coverage of the Hamas invasion of Israel. we got to push his new book, To Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment. Brett, I know they're uh, pulling you into, the, uh, into TV commentary. Just for a sec, what can you tell us about this crazy Hamas uh, intervention in Israel? Yeah, Larry, uh, thanks for having me on, and I apologize for being short here because of, of this coverage. It, it literally could be, turn out to be, Israel's 9-11. That's mm. how big a deal it is. Mm. It's 2,500-plus uh, rockets from Gaza, but more importantly, these um, these brigades of Hamas fighters going town to town in Israeli settlements along the border there, going house to house, shooting people. Mm. Uh, there are videos, Hamas mm. videos now circulating that are just, I mean, you can't even watch them mm. because they're taking out women and children. They're mm. taking hostages and putting them where they store weapons and um, explosives. 
this is going to begin a completely huge operation for Israel, and I, I think it will change the face of the Middle East. You know, I just got back from Riyadh and talking to the Saudi crown prince, and they were very close to normalization with Israel. Then I flew and, and talked to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he said he was really hopeful uh, they were going to work through the details. This moment, though, mm. this attack had to be months in the making, Larry. I've talked mm. to a lot of people. It's too complex, and it likely has a lot of financial support and a lot of direct support from Iran. So we're in a really tense moment in the world right this second. We just ponied up $6 billion to Iran. I mean, that kind yeah, of exactly. on that money, deal. On that money is fungible, deal. Brett. Money is fungible. Yeah, I, I think, listen, that all factors in, and I do think that that's going to be a big thing against the Biden administration. But this seems to, having talked to experts, been planned for months. You know, mm. maybe they funneled more money. But Iran has not stopped its funding of Hamas terrorists. And look for Hezbollah in the north to start stirring things up, too. There are reports of shooting on yeah. both sides. So we're, yeah. we're in a, a tense situation. Brett, just one other thing. Has Hamas broken through the Iron Dome air defense? There have been a, there have been a number of rockets that have. They've fired 2,500 at once. Mm. Um, and the air defense has been great, but there are a number of rockets that have taken out people. We're now at about 140 uh, mm. fatalities, about north of... 800 um, uh, injured, but uh, you have reports of whole communities either being held hostage or being taken out uh, one by one by these terrorists. Well, I do like to sell books. You've got to rescue the Constitution. <laughs> I know, and I wanted to be on. George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment. Now, I haven't read it yet. Uh, I have to raise the money to buy it, of being an impoverished uh, <laughs> FBI uh, host. <laughs> but, I mean, just, I mean, George Washington, if, if such a thing is possible, Brad, here's my quick take. George Washington is an underrated player in the Constitution. Now, is that kind of one of the themes in this book? It is. But he is, um, by his presence, uh, such a stabilizing figure that brings people together. You know, what a lot of people don't fully understand, and what I think this book does, and I try to do in all these history books, is have a soda straw look at a moment that maybe the specifics of that have been overlooked in history. Yeah. For You know, history is not being taught like it used to, and it's our kids are really being underserved about how our founding happened. But in the moments after the Revolutionary War, our country was falling apart. The Articles of Confederation were really not working, holding the colonies together. It was a mess, and a lot of people don't realize that we almost, as a country, never formed. That's how disparate uh, the situation was. It was a lot of dissent. George Washington was this figure that held it together and managed to get the different sides together uh, at that constitutional convention uh, to have a document, then to get it ratified. And he wanted to go home to Mount Vernon and be with Martha and just farm. Um, but they called him up again to be the first president. And then the biggest thing was that there was no blueprint. There was no, nobody told him what to do. There was no letter in the desk for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was no yeah. torch being passed. He was the torch. Right. And, uh, and then obviously left after his second term, creating the peaceful transfer of power. So I think people will learn a lot from this book in a narrative way that is 
Hmm. Um, very readable, kind of like hopefully my other books were. No, they were. Um, I want to get the book. I do want to read. Were you a history major in college or high school or something? You've written all these great history books. You know, I was English and political science, and mm-hmm. I started uh, this journey uh, writing about Eisenhower because I was invited to Augusta National. I'm a golfer, and it was mm-hmm. the invite of all invites, and I was staying at the Eisenhower cabin. And I poured myself a glass of wine or two and uh, walked around and realized mm-hmm. I didn't know President Eisenhower. And so I vowed to go to the Eisenhower Library, and that started this whole journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the three days series of the Eisenhower, Reagan, and then FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. And then I did a book about Ulysses S. Grant called To Rescue the Republic, uh, about the country really falling apart and maybe going back to a civil war, and then decided to go all the way back. And I think, honestly, of the books I've done, this is the most consequential, especially for the time, because we could use a George Washington right now. Yeah, we could. You know, I remember we talked about you. You were on the radio show for the Ulysses S. Grant book. I love Grant. As I said, he was a tax cutter. He restored the dollar to gold, at which point you ended the interview by saying he was the Jack Kemp of his time. I'll never forget (laughs) that. It was a fabulous Brett Baer uh, line. Brett, the other thing was interesting is you wanted to hold a debate with these uh, House uh, Speaker candidates, but it fell through. What, is the guys a bunch of chickens? Yeah. What's up with that? It was that? a mess. It was a mess. We They all locked in, you know, and even Kevin Hearn, who mm. said he was going to declare officially by close of business yesterday. So we decided to hold off the announcement until special report last night. But dealing with all these staffs on Capitol Hill, as you know, Larry, uh, mm-hmm. stuff gets out. It leaked in the morning, and then they all started getting pressure from members saying, you can't talk to the press before you talk to, to us. So, you know, I tried to hold it together. They were all locked in, and then it kind of fell apart. And with Hearn tweeting out, or X, whatever you want to say, saying, uh, I'm not going to do any television until um, until we talk to the members individually, you know. And meanwhile, he was the second one to lock in, uh, you know, in the, uh, in, in the joint interview. Uh, he said to Neil Cavuto, because he was on TV this morning, and he's not running for speaker. So it was a valiant effort. We tried. Um, but um, I think it's going to be fascinating come Tuesday, Wednesday. I bet, Larry, a lot of this gets, as far as the fervor around it, gets uh, eaten up by what's happening in Israel. It's really uh, a bad thing. That's a good point. You know, Hearn called me last late last week. He wanted to come on our show. And I, I said we weren't ready. I didn't want to play favorites, that kind of thing. Who's the, is, is Scalise still the front runner? How do you read it? I would say uh, Jordan probably took over with the former president's endorsement. Um, He probably has a little bit more of the moment. Uh, But it's it's really complicated, Larry. You've got uh, support for Ukraine. Some elements of the caucus are really concerned about that. You've got, you know, some Democrats could weigh in uh, because they have a vote, too. And it's a matter of getting to 218. So Mm -hmm. um, I I think it will be fascinating. I, I would say the bet goes to Jordan at this point. Right. Interesting. Brett, go ahead and inform people about the war. We appreciate your coming on. Folks, the name of the book is To Rescue the Constitution, George Washington and the Fragile American Experiment. My pal Brett there. Brett, you were fabulous on the pre-debate show, by the way. You oh, were we had fun. Fabulous. It was you a were, great you, time. That's for you. you.
beyond good and forevermore with uh, heartbreaks. I feel your pain. It's <laughs> <laughs> a different ball game, right? But it thanks sure so much is. for having me on today, and I'm you sorry bet. I'm cutting it short. No, 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 no. Good luck. Uh, best to Amy. Take care of yourself. Folks, I'm Cudlow. That was the great Brett Bear. We will take a quick break, and on the other side, we're going to talk to Fox legal analyst Greg Jarrett about constitutional issues surrounding the Trump trials. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in our dear friend Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst. His latest book, New York Times bestseller, Trial of the Century, The Scopes Monkey Trial, Clarence Darrow versus William Jennings. Brian, uh, Greg, thank you for this. You know, uh, Greg, I want to talk to you about this constitutional issue, double jeopardy. The Trump's uh, legal defense with respect to the January 6th charges, as you know, is that he was impeached by the House, but he was acquitted by the Senate. And what the Justice Department is doing, and Jack Smith, the special counsel, is trying to retry the case. And they're saying, the Trumps are saying, it's double jeopardy. Now, Greg, I had uh, Dershowitz on last night and talked about this. And his take was that it's an interesting, clever, and important defense, but he... He, Alan Dershowitz, didn't know, he wasn't sure how this might play out. And, yeah, it might get to the Supreme Court because no one's really ruled on this sort of thing before. Now, I'm simplifying, but that's all I know. I'm not a lawyer, obviously. What do you think about this double jeopardy business? Well, I think it's a legitimate argument uh, by uh, Donald Trump and his defense team, and I think Alan Dershowitz is right because there's a paucity of prior case law that you know makes a judgment on this so you know double jeopardy obviously is in the fifth amendment but i would go to article one section three of the constitution and it says that a person convicted on an impeachment is subject to indictment in a regular court of law but but what about a person who is acquitted? Uh, you know, because it doesn't say one way or another, the argument could be made that if you're acquitted, double jeopardy kicks in and you can't be tried again for the same offense. And I think there is authority for that. Uh, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the premier office at the Department of Justice that in, advises uh, all U.S. attorneys advises the attorney general, advises all executive branches, issued a memo back in 2000, well before Donald Trump. And they say that impeachment exhausts every single legal remedy, and therefore uh, if somebody is acquitted in an impeachment, uh, they can't be tried again uh, in a court of law it would be double jeopardy. Mm. Now, there, there's, there, Dershow is right. There's not a lot of case law in this, although uh, there was the case of uh, the federal judge, Alcee Hastings. Um, you know, he was impeached 
but only after he was acquitted uh, first in a court of law and bribery charges. Uh, so you have sort of a reversal there. So, you know, it's an open question. We just don't know. But if I were uh, the lawyer for Donald Trump, I would absolutely assert it as a complete defense. You know, Greg, you mentioned there isn't much case law. Are there any cases that are close to this? No, the Alcee Hastings case is the only one. But that was in reverse order. Mm. Now, look, uh, the special counsel uh, would assert, and, and so would uh, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, that, wait a minute, uh, the framers intended for an impeachment to be a political mechanism, not a strictly legal one. Um, I'm not sure that that is a legitimate argument when it comes to the uh, double jeopardy clause in the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, because that doesn't say uh, a word about a trial in a court of law. So, you know, again, uh, it's an open question, but it, it is certainly worth examining, and this would be a case of a first impression by the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, who knows? You know, I asked Alan Dershowitz, whom I like very much, uh, this was last night on the show, I asked him um, just to step back for a minute, this this will take a while to adjudicate, and if the Trump defense team wants to take it to the Supreme Court, you could be talking about, what, a, a year or two years before it gets up there? Yes. Um, you know, they they could take it on an expedited basis, and given the gravity of the situation in the upcoming presidential election, um, I think they would be disposed to do that. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and, you know, the, the first thing you would have to do is bring it in front of the trial court judges in both Florida, mm. uh, ex- excuse me, Georgia, and, you know, in Washington, D.C., the special counsel case, and then take it from there. I mean, you could go s- straight to the U.S. Supreme Court on an expedited basis or go to the appellate court uh, level next before the Supreme Court. Or, Greg, I just wonder whether Chief Justice Roberts might not want to take it before the election. Well, you know, Roberts has been stinging uh, from a lot of criticism associated with prior uh, Supreme Court meddling Mm -hmm. in presidential elections, most infamously back in, in 2000. The Supreme Court, you know, had a bit of a black eye over that and immense criticism uh, by, you know, law professors and legal experts. So, you know, they, they're never willing to step into anything the, uh, relating to elections, but they might be forced to. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see about all that. Anyway, Greg Jarrett. Uh, folks, I just want to put another plug in, Trial of the Century. It's a really cool book. I actually read the book cover to cover. You write, You got a new book coming out, Greg? You working on a new book? I do. Uh, it's called The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. It comes out in one month, uh, oh. November 14th. You can pre-order it on, uh, you know, the usual online sources, Amazon.com and so forth. It, 
It is, it's a keepsake book. I put together a compilation of America's most important historic documents, and I edited them and explained them uh, all the way from, you know, b- before the Revolutionary War all the way to present day. Um, and, it, you know, I write uh, about the history of the United States and why these documents were so vital to yeah. our prosperity and our liberties. Got it. Greg Jarrett, Fox News. Appreciate it, my friend. Folks, quick break. Other side of the break, John Carney of Breitbart. We'll talk about um, Joe Biden's claim that the economy is in great shape. Ha, 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 ha. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to bring in my pal John Carney, Breitbart News Editor for Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Talking about you last night on the show, John, with uh, Alex Marlowe. I heard, Larry. Thank you. You guys were both so kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's our pleasure. So, uh I guess we should talk jobs, but I kind of like this one. Fact check. Biden falsely claims Americans are better off than they know it. And by the way, you were way too lenient with him because um, <laughs> the inflation. And I mean, I know officially the pandemic wasn't over, but it, 2021, it was basically over. And the economy. Yes. I mean, come on. Actually, so it was right. over. When I, when I went to look when they officially declared the um, yeah. uh, the, the, the pandemic over, it, it, and, they, and it was March 2023, so just a couple, but, you know, that's obviously <laughs> absurd. If I made it to the real end, which would have been March 2021, uh, we, you know, it, the numbers would be far worse for Biden. So what I tried to do in the piece is show that even under the most generous interpretation, Biden's just out of his mind to say that people are better off. And, you know, the, the, the even more bizarre, surreal part about his claim that he made just yesterday was people are better off and they know it mm. because those are both both sides of that are testable. People aren't better off, as I showed, you know, because inflation's too high. If you, you know, anything you do, real wages, disposable income, misery index, it, mm. it's all worse off. Um, and then if you look at the polls that should do people know it, as he said, no, people feel like the economy is terrible because it is. And so it's a very strange thing. And it actually makes you wonder who's talking to him, who's telling him this stuff. He didn't make it up. Somebody, had, you know, that was a prepared line. Somebody mm-hmm. was, you know, has coached him up on that. I don't know. You know, I asked Alex Marlowe, the Breitbart editor in chief, why is it that, this guy lies so much. He is incapable of telling the truth about the economy and other things. You know what he said yesterday? He said we're having a budget surplus. He actually <laughs> said that. We're having I mean he'd get his line about he put his line in about the deficit came down one point seven trillion. That's another lie. It's gonna be over two trillion this year. But then he went and said we're gonna have a surplus. And we're gonna have a surplus because all these rogue law-breaking corporations are finally paying their fair share. What is he talking about? Yeah, this is a very bizarre thing. I mean, one of the things that happened last year is we did lose a lot of uh, tax revenue from capital gains taxes because the stock market did so bad. 
and yeah. doing better this year. Um, is particularly the NASDAQ is, you know, have done, yeah. had a tremendous year. Um, and so, you know, there will be capital gains. They'll take in some extra money, but it has nothing to do with, as you, you know, the rogue, you know, uh, companies paying their taxes, but that's, you know, again, a, a, a lie. And as Alex pointed out, and as he points out in his book, Breaking Biden, uh, he gets away with this, these lies all the time. The media just does not call him out on it. And I think that actually encourages it. When you, you know, you, it's almost like a little kid, like a little kid tells a lie to test to see whether he'll get caught. And if he doesn't, he tells more lies. Biden's like that, but he's the little kid who never grew up. He's a 76-year-old guy telling these lies all the time. Well, my, you know, when uh, we talked about this uh, on the show with Alex Marlowe, you know, um, he, I've, look, I've worked for two presidents. I've been in and out of politics a long time. I understand embellishments, John. I understand, you know, what I would call little white lies. Um, you know, presidents are entitled to brag because they're president. But this guy is a total truth reversal. I mean, just one thing after another. It includes his personal life, uh, not just his political life and not just his uh, term as his tenure as as president. I mean, he just can't get well, the worst lie was I inherited a reeling economy with high inflation. And when you go back and look at the numbers, what he inherited in the first quarter was a 6.5% growth rate with 1.5% inflation. And And that was a a continuation of the lie he had been telling all through the campaign that Donald Trump's, as he called it, you know, mismanagement or bungling of the COVID response had hurt the U.S. economy when, in fact, the U.S. economy was doing far better than our European uh, allies were doing. So, you know, it was a lie to begin with. Then he had to carry on the lie to say that the economy was wrecked when he took office. And so it's, you know, it's one lie leading to another. And frankly, I actually think at this point it may have helped him in the past. It probably lying that much and the media not calling him out on it probably helped him get elected. It's actually hurting him now because I think a lot of Americans see a guy who's supposed to be the leader of the country who doesn't seem to get what's going on in the economy, who's telling them that things are great and that they know it when they know the opposite. And I think it's actually making him seem out of touch rather than doing him any political favor. Well, even the Washington Post guy said he was a bottomless Pinocchio. (laughs) I mean, that was whatever that guy's name is. Um, John, I know that on the job number, the the top line jobs, 336,000 was a big number. But I got to tell you, I dug into the household employment number, and it really wasn't good. I mean, uh, you've got, let's see, 123,000 more people holding multiple jobs, and households only went up 86,000. Full-time employees, John, fell 22,000, and part-timers were the bulk of it. Part-time employees went up 151,000. I mean, I think there's a lot of weakness under the top-line number. 
I'll tell you, in the establishment survey, and I haven't gone into this yet in a piece, but I will, there's also some weakness you can detect in establishment survey. A lot of the jobs are government jobs. Yes. A lot of them are, yes. are a lot of them were leisure and hospitality, which tend to be low-paying. And a lot of them are social services and hospital jobs. Mm-hmm. Again, not really engines of growth for the economy and for you know examples of an innovating and expanding economy. So I think that's troubling. On the other hand, I do think that like I try not to pick and choose. I think mm. I do think that the establishment survey is slightly more reliable than the household survey. It's bigger than the household survey. Uh, the other thing is I think the household survey and this um, may actually be missing some of the employment gains, and this isn't great, but that are going to all of the people who have crossed the border and are getting work permits from the mm-hmm. Biden administration. Mm-hmm. I think that that is actually one of the quieter secret feeds. In, you know, because you, when you see 336, you know, people joining payrolls when the unemployment rate's already 3.8%, you have to wonder, where are those people coming from? Mm. And at least some of them, about from what I can tell, maybe a million over the last year, uh, are foreign, are an additional group of foreign-born people joining payrolls. That's not great because it doesn't, it means that, you know, uh, that what looks like job growth for Americans is actually going to mm. people who have crossed the border. But I, I do think uh, – and those people don't show up, by the way, in the household surveys because, they, you know, the, the Department of Labor doesn't have a way of getting in touch with them right now. So well, they'll they show do, up in the establishment surveys, though. They, they do have cell phones, John, because they, they, yeah, right. they use the app to get into the country. <laughs> I, they've been handed new cell phones and new numbers, burner phones, by the Biden administration. <laughs> it's incredible. Now, those would be, I would guess – uh, low-wage jobs. Yes, those are low-wage jobs. But what's interesting, so I, li- you know, you live and I live very near New York City. I was uh, talking with a cab driver the other day who was himself an immigrant from Africa, hmm. and he was very upset with all of these people being let into the country. Uh, he actually said to me, he's like, those guys there, and he pointed as we were driving past a hotel that just had dozens, scores of people sitting outside who had been put up by the New York City government into this hotel. He said, those are the people that I left my country to get away from. And he asked me, why are you letting them in? (laughs) I told him, I was like, look, I, you know, I did my best. I, you know, it's not my decision. Mm. Uh, John, this is the last one. uh, The CPI come out this coming week. Yes, it will be ultra important because after this strong jobs number, people will be looking for that to decide what is the Fed going to do. And is there a sneak peek from the Cleveland Fed? Yes. So the, it, it doesn't have a very, you know, it's not expected to go up a lot. And mm-hmm. this is something I've been saying that we can see, uh, which is we're not like inflation isn't going to spike back up to 9% unless there's some huge, you know, supply chain mm-hmm. uh, problem. But what is going to happen is that we are going to get uh, inflation sort of stagnated. So the Cleveland Fed CPI sees September coming in at 3.69, mm-hmm. core at 4.17. Mm-hmm. So that is actually, you know, means no progress is being made. Right. And that's why I think if the Fed sees numbers like that, unless it comes in much weaker, I think if the Fed sees numbers like that, it is going to have to rethink the idea that it can keep, you know, rates at where they are yeah. and they're going to have to keep going up. 
Yeah, 3 to 4% inflation. Anyway, John Carney, Breitbart, we appreciate it very, very much, John. See you next week. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, the great Congresswoman Claudia Tenney. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Bringing our friend Congresswoman Claudia Tenney from upstate New York, Ways and Means Oversight Committee. Uh, welcome back, Claudia. Thanks for helping us. Claudia, I was uh, on the horn with Brett Baer talking about this incredible Hamas invasion of Israel, um, which is, he described it as Israel's 9-11. This is a very serious thing. Uh, you may have thoughts on this, but also it may overshadow the speaker's race, and I just wondered about that angle. Yeah, I think that's interesting, but nothing is more important uh, than what's happening right now in Israel with obviously the tremendous work done by your old boss, uh, President Trump and the administration, Secretary Pompeo, in creating one of the best situations we've seen in the Middle East in my lifetime, for sure, uh, whether obviously, uh, you know, cutting off the money to the Palestinians, uh, killing off Qasem uh, Soleimani, al-Baghdadi, uh, getting out of the terrible Iran nuclear deal, creating the Abraham Accords historically, creating a, a situation where the rest of the Middle East can actually acquire peace. And it's not coincidental, in my opinion, Larry, uh, that this is happening on the 50-year anniversary of the last worst situation we saw in Israel uh, with this type of unprovoked attack on civilians, literally war crimes, uh, the, you know, the 50-year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And on top of uh, just weeks ago, the Biden administration gave Iran $6 billion, more pallets of cash, which we know they were going to turn around and use uh, to sponsor terrorism. And here we are with Hamas attacking innocent civilians, an unprovoked war, uh, and Netanyahu has every reason to stand up. And this, I'm, going to, I'm going to link this back to the speaker's race and everything that went on in Washington last week, and I'll, I'll tell you why. These are real situations. And when you see the Biden administration, the U.S. Office for Palestinians, asking both sides as though there is some kind of equal uh, treatment here of the Palestinians uh, and, the, and, the Gaza, and what's happened in Gaza, uh, telling both sides not to, uh, to engage in violence and, and, and telling Israel, in essence, our greatest ally, the only democracy in the Middle East, uh, to not retaliate, to not protect its own citizens. And I immediately came out with a tweet against that. Uh, it was egregious, and guess what? They took it down. But this is telling. This is a, a great reveal of how this administration views this situation. How their support for Israel is tepid. How they have no plan. They project weakness. And and this is why I come back right to this speaker's race. Why it was so important uh, that this, and why in some ways very tragic what happened to us last week. Mm. We are the last line of defense as the Republican majority right now in the House. We have a weak president. He's compromised uh, in every way, whether it's his cognitive ability, his career politician, his complete vapidity. He has no ideas about how to do anything. And when he does have ideas, they're always wrong. He's corrupt. He's involved in schemes that thankfully were uncovered because of the very, very slim majority that we, the Republicans, have in the House. Chuck Schumer is doing absolutely nothing in the Senate. He's not standing up on it. Any of these issues, inflation, migration, the disastrous foreign policy that we're seeing. And so we have this very, very fragile four seat majority in the House that needs to stand together because the Democrats stand together and they're allowing all these things to happen. 
and an administration that's destroying our nation, destroying our international relations, a Senate that's doing nothing about it. We had a moment, and whether you like Kevin McCarthy or not, I think we talked about this on your show, he pulled a rabbit out of a hat on Saturday Mm -hmm. to keep our government open so that we could live to fight another day. Had that Had we shut down the government like so many of these conservatives, who I consider in many cases, I know they're well-intentioned, reckless, you cannot throw grenades and run away. You have to stay in this fight. And we were facing, and I call it a Chapter 7. That means it's a surrender. You give up your business, gone, walk away, you know, give them the keys, uh, the judge and and your predators fight over the scraps. That's what we were facing. Kevin McCarthy brought us back to a Chapter 11 where we now have a chance to reorganize. That's why this race is so important, and that's why the failure of these people who voted against Kevin McCarthy, it's not about Kevin McCarthy because I think they'll do this to anyone who becomes speaker. We need to stand strong, not just as Republicans in the House for our own nation and our own interests, but also internationally. We are all there is. This is it. And and if, if these people don't understand the gravity of the position they're in when you make decisions on the floor of the House, that are so critical in such dangerous times in our country. This is when leaders have to emerge, and we have to be responsible. It's not just about, I have a personal grievance against Kevin McCarthy because I didn't get this committee, or he promised me this, and he promised me that, and he lied to me. The decision comes down to the moment. You know, when Winston Churchill was making decisions in World War II, it wasn't about – personal grievances have to be put aside for what's in the national interest. And we did – I think that in many cases these people – thought about themselves personally. They were monetizing uh, their votes on the floor. I'm still getting fundraising emails from people who took this as some kind of, you know, a a chance to make money. And it's a game. This is not a game. This is really serious stuff, Larry. And it it just really concerns me that regardless of whether how you feel about Kevin McCarthy, we need to stick together. Well, I love the guy. I mean, I supported him. I thought the whole thing was a tragedy. By the way, your other point, you know, the House Republicans are the last bastion of defense for Israel. For Israel. Israel has very few friends in the Biden administration. I mean, that $6 billion deal with the prisoner exchange was a terrible, terrible deal. They're still negotiating some kind of phony deal with Iran, which finances Hamas. And by the by, if anyone doubts the seriousness, I was just listening to Brett Baer, who was covering this. He took time out to come on the radio, but he's covering it for Fox News this morning. Claudia, he's saying Hamas is going house to house in Israel, killing Israelis. House to house, killing it. You talk about war crimes. There you have it. And there we have a president that put out a statement through his uh, national security advisor, has not even come on to talk about what we are seeing unfolding all this morning. I have friends who are living in Israel. Mm. Uh, one of my uh, former staffers, he is business school now. He's going to go out and, uh, and do great things in the world. But his sister and his brother live there. Mm. Uh, I have other friends of mine who have called me from Israel. I mean, this is a real serious situation. And this all could have been avoided, just like the uh, war in Iran could have been, uh, in, in uh, Ukraine could have been avoided. Strong policy, strong economy. Uh, peace through strength, which is what President Trump uh, really mimicked and, and did even a better job in many respects to what President Reagan did, that Abraham Accords was genius. Mm-hmm. What he did to isolate the Palestinians, to show the rest of the Middle East that you can, too, be part of that. You know, right now, Larry, I'm supposed to be uh, in Israel 
uh, working on a a situation to get Saudi Arabia, an 80-year ally. Not perfect. We know that. But an 80-year ally wants to be part of this Abraham Accords, a critical ally to the United States. You know what's happening right now? We have the Strait of Hormuz. This is about energy again. Right there on the in the in the Persian Gulf or the Persian Sea, we, we come around the Persian Gulf and into uh, that key area. Uh, I think what is it? Twenty five percent of the world's liquefied natural gas and, and even more oil go through that very critical area to the rest of the world to provide energy to bolster economies. And that's going to be a, something to watch as, as what we see happening right now. This is a, a, a completely derelict administration with a guy who I, in, in my opinion, again is incompetent on so many levels, not has always been incompetent, and now is, you know, mentally showing that he doesn't have the ability to be able to do this job. And that's what really concerns me is we are in a dangerous place. I wouldn't be surprised if China starts looking at its options with Taiwan now, and we're continuing to, to not do things to defend Israel. Look, we should be defending Iron Dome right now. We should be um, replenishing our supplies and arms that were depleted for Ukraine that were in Jerusalem. Uh, we should be condemning these war crimes that have now been committed. Uh, we have to start getting serious, and we need serious people serving in our government that aren't going to put our entire conference with that very slim majority into chaos like we did last week. We have a very important speaker vote. It's time to move on. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I thought it was terrible what they did to Kevin McCarthy. Whether you like him or not, everybody has a grievance against the speaker. All leaders have hard jobs. And look what the Republicans have done to their leadership over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. You know, it, it, Nancy Pelosi has a place of worship in the Capitol because the Democrats stick together. And I consider her to be terrible. All right. Claudia, I got to jump. Well put. Great. Well Thanks put. So As always. Thank you, Claudia Tenney, everybody. Folks, we're going to take a break. On the other side, we will do some stock market work. I'm Cudlow. That was great from Claudia Tenney. We appreciate it very much. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to do some money in politics. Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, host of the Monica Crowley podcast, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and WABC radio host of More Money. Uh, Monica, jump to you. You're the international expert. There's a state of war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. A few weeks after Joe Biden gave Iran $6 billion, what do you make of it, Monica? Yeah, it's completely outrageous, but also totally predictable that the Middle East is now in this situation and freedom-loving people around the world are now in this situation. Joe Biden has been pressuring the Israelis his entire career. Uh, His administration, as you point out, Larry, just turned around and released $6 billion in previously frozen funds to the mullahs in Tehran. Iran, of course, for a long time, has been the major, the premier state sponsor of terror. The Iranians, as soon as they got their hands on that $6 billion, made a public statement saying that they were free to do whatever they wanted with the money. The Biden administration was saying, well, they're going to use it for humanitarian purposes. This is a theocratic, 
terrorist regime. They never had any intention of using it for humanitarian purposes. Of course, it was going to go to terror. And now we are seeing the direct results of Joe Biden, Secretary Blinken, his entire foreign policy team, their move to release this money to Iran. And now within days, we have an absolute massacre happening on the ground to our key ally in the Middle East, Israel. We've got thousands of people who are either dead, wounded, or have been taken hostage. If you have seen some of the footage coming out of Israel, we've got Israeli citizens waiting for the bus to go to work, being shot dead in the street, Mm. being dragged out of their cars and shot dead, left to just uh, die in the street. These images are absolutely appalling. Uh, This is Israel's 9-11, and... Joe Biden, Secretary Blinken, the entire Biden foreign policy team has that blood on their hands. You know, uh, Steve Moore, there's an economic principle here, and the dumbheads in the White House don't understand it. Money is fungible. (laughs) So $6 billion for humanitarian aid can be spent or allocated for war and terrorism. I mean, you know, when this story broke and they all talked about humanitarian aid, I said to myself, you are even stupider than I thought. Well, Larry, I I can't add too much to uh, what you guys were just talking about with Monica, but I will say this, that, you know, there's also an even bigger uh, kind of slush fund that that the White House has created, this $380 billion green energy slush fund which is not going to be used for improving the environment or combating climate change. It's going to be a, a fund that will um, basically put money into the hands of left-wing hmm. um, organizations that support the democratic agenda, whether it's green groups or whether it's solar panel companies or others. So, you know, when people say, gee, it's so hard to cut the budget. No, it's not. There's <laughs> there's so much waste. There's so much duplication. There's so much inefficiency in government that we could easily be cutting hundreds of billions of dollars a year out of this obese federal budget. Well, look at that that, that discussion on the budget. Um, I was going to get your opinion on Hillary Clinton, a great stateswoman that she is, who wants to deprogram people like you, right. Steve Moore. She wants to deprogram you. Uh, it's already bad enough that you're part of a basket of deplorables, but she now wants to deprogram you and your conservative budget and other MAGA opinions. Well, you All know, right? I think are I'll you ready to be, be deprogrammed? Top of, top of that list. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, I'm a, I'm a deplorable. Are you, Larry? Hmm. I know that Monica's a deplorable. So, well, I think well I'm, I'm sure. working. I'm working so hard to be a deplorable, but now I, <laughs> I want. I'm going to be deprogrammed. I don't know how you do that. I mean, you have to go to a hospital, or, or, or well, she didn't really walk through how to execute that. This is what the the Soviets did, you know, when they <laughs> took over and, and turned everyone into communists. They basically put people into, you know, camps where they would basically um, indoctrinate them. And I think mm-hmm. that's what uh, what Hillary Clinton is sort of endorsing. It's really kind of reprehensible, actually, when you think about what she's saying. You know, Monica... Hillary's got a big mouth, but this is a recurring theme with her. If you don't agree with me, if you take a conservative position, you're a deplorable and you have to be deprogrammed and whatever it all goes with that. I mean, 
It's is it interesting to you as it is to me? Her husband, Bill Clinton, doesn't say stuff like that, but she says stuff like that. I mean, she's really kind of a far out radical, isn't she? Yes, and she has been her entire career. I have been studying Mrs. Clinton now for longer than I want to admit, or <laughs> I would like to get that part of my life back. Uh, but I, I, I will say this: you know, my my very first boss was former President Richard Nixon during the last years of his life, and he often said that in many cases the women were far more radical than the men. Mm. And he said, you know, you just look at Chairman Mao, his wife, Madame Mao, was far more radical. And whether you're looking at fascists or communists, oftentimes the women are more radical than their husbands, significant others, or the men in the foxholes uh, with them. And I think in Mrs. Clinton's case, that is certainly the case. She has always been the far more radical, um, you know, of the two. Her husband actually governed as a pragmatic moderate, not mm. Barack Obama, but Bill Clinton. Mm. But the Democratic Party is no longer the party of her husband. It is the party of Barack Obama and the Marxist radicals. She is perfectly at home there. Because remember, one of the very first things Mrs. Clinton uh, learned when she began her life as a political activist, she studied under Saul Alinsky, the original left-wing communist radical, right? So Mrs. Clinton has been steeped in this for a long time. And when she talks about uh, re-education, deprogramming, that language is dehumanizing. And she's saying it on purpose. This is what the radicals in this country really have an objective to do and a lot I mean, of people yeah. laugh it off and think it's not possible yeah. but it's already happening well in the same week this is so interesting to me the clintons in the same week all right bill clinton goes on john katsimatidi's right. radio show right and criticizes biden for his uh-huh. awful illegal immigration border policies and says right. basically you got to close the border and then the same week Hillary starts attacking, you know, all the so-called MAGA Republicans, whatever it is, to deprogram them, uh, presumably because they want to close the border, which is what her husband wants to do. I mean, mm-hmm. no wonder that they don't live together. No, no wonder <laughs> they don't get along. Well, I mean, she's a know, crazy left winger, and he's a perfectly sensible, mainstream, moderate, old line Democrat. Right. And, and look, this is uh, Monica made a key point that the party of Bill Clinton and, and look, Bill Clinton was a moderate centrist mm-hmm. uh, Democrat. Remember, Larry, we could work with that guy. Remember, yeah. I mean, we, we cut yeah. the capital gains tax. We did welfare yeah. reform. Now, sometimes we had to drag him doing it, but mm-hmm. we accomplished a lot. The stock market went through the roof. We mm-hmm. saw the biggest reduction in federal spending under Clinton, of, you know, in 50 years. And so he was a practical Democrat. That They don't exist anymore. And one other quick point about what Hillary said. You know, we kind of make fun of it, and it's a laughable comment. But there, it, what it really reflects is a kind of elitism of the left, of the kind of they, the top 1%, that they, they think that they're morally and culturally and intellectually superior to working-class Americans. They do. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason. And Trump really tapped into that. That's why they hate Trump so much, because Trump is the candidate of working class, middle class Americans work 40 hours a day, get their hands dirty, uh, do the grunt work in this country. And those the, I love those people. But but Hillary and her clan 
have contempt for working class Americans. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, Monica. I mean, she's she's always been that way. So she lost in 2016, and then she started talking about deplorables. Uh, David Asman was talking last night on the TV show. Her deplorable speech took the nomination away from her in 2020. The de- yep. Even the Democrats were horrified by that. And now here she goes again. And, you know, we were talking, was it a week or two back, we were talking about how Michelle Obama might be the presidential candidate. If Michelle Obama became the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton would jump off a cliff. She would go crazy. She'd go, absolutely, you are, you are she'd go, exactly right. she'd yes, go out and kill herself know. because she couldn't stand it. Yeah, I mean it. Oh, no, a hundred percent. You are exactly right. And like I said, I've been studying Mrs. Clinton for longer than I care to admit. And I will say that she has spent her entire life and career um, in service of one goal, which was to become president of the United States. Mm. So she subsumed herself to her husband's multiple humiliations in their private life, everything else. Then she put herself on this track from law school to first lady of Arkansas to first lady of the United States to U.S. senator to secretary of state, all in service of that goal. And her deal with her husband was uh, two for the price of one. You go first and then it'll be my turn. And the fact that she lost the presidency not once but twice to two men who had a better sense of where the American people were at any given moment, number one, Barack Obama in 2008, and number two, Donald Trump in 2016. The fact that she has lost her life's goal both times to two different men has her absolutely embittered and incensed. And while we're talking about, you know, her comment about the deplorables and everything else, she did do something else uh, that was even more dangerous. And the country is still suffering the ramifications. And that is the Russia hoax. The Russia hoax came out of the diseased mind of Mrs. Clinton and her campaign. And we're suffering the fallout to this very day. I mean, basically... We've we got to take a break. Steve, mm-hmm. she, she's a left-wing Democrat, and Bill Clinton is a moderate Republican. <laughs> that's really what you got going Well, that's here. true, and I know if we're going to take a break, it. but I, just, I don't want this just to be out about Hillary Clinton. This is where the Democratic Party is today. Yeah. She just spoke something that a lot of Democrats probably would be afraid to say, but I think a lot of them agree with her. Well, I want to know where to get the operation. Anyway, uh, Steve Moore... Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, his radio show, More Money, and Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and host of the Monica Crowley Podcast. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. We are talking money and politics with Monica Crowley former Assistant Treasury Secretary and host of the Monica Crowley Podcast, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the radio host of More Money on WABC Radio. Steve Moore, simple question, who's going to be the next Speaker of the House? Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, look, I, th- I think um, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are fantastic people, and they would both be excellent, um, you know, excellent uh, speakers. I-, I-, I do feel that what's happened this past week has been 
really unfortunate, and I think it's been bad for the party. And I know I think you feel the same way, Larry. And so I, I mean, I just I think it's it's been unfair. I think it's at a time. Here here's my point about this, Larry, and and I just want people to understand what's going on here. Yes, we have a massively out-of-control debt, and spending is out of control, and it's caused inflation, all sorts of problems for Americans. The villain here is not Kevin McCarthy. The villain is Joe Biden. And I just feel like we've taken our eye off the ball. Republican uh, approval ratings have fallen in the last four days because people are disgusted by what's happened. Mm. Um, uh, I was talking to Brett Baer earlier in the show, and I asked him about all this. And he felt that Jim Jordan had the upper hand now yeah, because former I think so. President Trump endorsed him. You agree? I do. You do agree? Yeah. Do you think anybody else can come into the race, Steve? Well, Donald Trump could. <laughs> um, but, um, look, I, I, I th- the, the danger right now that I'm hearing, Larry, is that um, the moderates – of the party, you know, there are maybe 15 or 20, you know, more moderate Republicans in the House, and they've seen what, you know, what uh, what happened when you know, Gates and others on the right rebelled, and now they're gonna, they could hold the the caucus hostage, Larry, mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to go for Scalise, we're not going to go for Jordan, they're too conservative. I, I, there's a chance we may have a hard time getting 218 votes for anybody. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that's an important point. I mean, uh, the co- the conference may be split, and um, nobody can get two eighteen. They may, they, I don't know. There may be a compromise candidate. Monica, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you have any preferences on this, Monica Crowley? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see President Trump with the speaker's gavel for you know a limited amount of time. Um, the, the the idea that you know a Speaker Trump would have to tell all of the judges in his bogus harassment cases around the country that he can't make court because he's presiding over Biden's impeachment would be a moment too delicious <laughs> to uh, let go. Okay? So I, I wonder, by the way, that. I wonder if the pre- if uh, if Donald Trump could serve as president and speaker of the House at the same time. <laughs> you know, t- trouble is he's got a he's got a very crowded schedule because he's got to defend eighteen million dollars Mar-a-Lago, which is probably worth a billion and a half. <laughs> right, right. It's all so absurd. So no, Donald Trump is not going to be the speaker. He did endorse Jim Jordan. That was a very important. Uh, endorsement. So as of the moment, but of course anything could change. It's also fluid. Uh, but it does look like Jordan has the edge. Steve Scalise is a wonderful guy. Um, but to Steve's point about, you know, the moderates might want to rebel. The moderates are not where the Republican base is. The Republican base, and, you know, we can argue whether or not the Matt Gates-led rebellion here was wise or not. I supported Gates in this. I disagree with both of you. I think the country cannot go on like this, and we need this kind of disruption to change the trajectory of what is expected of our leaders here. But the Republican base is where Matt Gates is. It's not where the Republican moderates are. So if they want to try to pull this and deny the speakership from Jim Jordan, it is not going to be a very pretty scene yeah. for them. Well, well you know, to, Steve, to I'm, what, not, I'm not going to I'm not going to comment on a defense of, of Matt Gates, but I'll I'll just leave that one out there. Uh, but one thing's for sure: Kevin McCarthy was a phenomenal 
fundraiser. And they are losing that capacity. And that is so important. You know, I mean, you're going to have to... Steve Scalise is better at it probably than Jim Jordan, but really, McCarthy was a superpower fundraiser. Yeah. And that's a troubling aspect that uh, deserves some attention. Is. And that's, Larry, that's a big part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you're yeah. the chief fundraiser yeah. for the party, and you can't, you can't win races without money. But I want to just expand on something that uh, Monica said, because, uh, you know, we disagree on, on this, but... You know, I wrote a piece in our hotline uh, Tuesday just saying I thought that this was a big mistake and we've got to keep our eyes on Biden, not McCarthy. He's not the problem. And I got a, just a torrent of people saying, oh, Steve Moore, you become part of the swamp. Pe- uh, my point is people out there in, in Main Street America are absolutely stressed out. They're furious mm. about what's happening in Washington. And I don't think either party is very attentive to how angry Americans are of what's happened to our government. Mm-hmm. Monica, do we have to have more debates? I mean, <laughs> can we dispense with the rest of these debates and just get on with it? it that's a very good question, and it's a question for Ronan McDaniel at the RNC. Apparently, there's going to be at least one more debate uh, next month in Miami. Um, it remains to be seen. Is that going to be gonna, with or without Trump? It's going to be it without. Could be with or without Trump. I mean, he would certainly qualify. I don't know how many of the other GOP candidates will qualify if they tighten up some of the uh, criteria to get on that stage. But, you know, it's generally a waste of time. I mean, it, you know, I guess it's okay to, for the American people to see GOP candidates talking about important issues about the economy, pro-growth economic agenda, foreign policy. However, that last debate was not, not in the history of GOP debates, was not one of their finest hours. Um, so that ended up being counterproductive, I think, not just for the candidates, but for the party. Donald Trump is now leading by 40, 50, and some polls 60 points. So for all intents and purposes, this primary is over. And I think the party needs to uh, unify and get behind Donald Trump, get all of the resources aligned behind him, because the battles he is facing, the battles America First is facing, need everybody's concentrated attention. You know, Steve, you know, uh, there is a debate I really do want to see, Larry, and it's coming up in November, and I think all Americans should watch it, and that is this debate that looks like it's going to happen between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. And this will be a red state versus blue state, because uh, this is what the election is really about. Do you want America to look more like more like California or Florida? Well, and this I, is I, what... This is what DeSantis, DeSantis should have run on this. DeSantis should have run on this the whole time, but alas, he didn't. Anyway, Monica Crowley, thank you, love. Steve Moore, thank you, love. Appreciate it very much, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we will be back next weekend. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to do some money in politics. Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, host of the Monica Crowley Podcast, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and WABC radio host of More Money. 
Uh, Monica, jump to you. You're the international expert. There's a state of war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. A few weeks after Joe Biden gave Iran $6 billion, what do you make of it, Monica? Yeah, it's completely outrageous, but also totally predictable that the Middle East is now in this situation and freedom-loving people around the world are now in this situation. Joe Biden has been pressuring the Israelis his entire career. Uh, his administration, as you point out, Larry, just turned around and released $6 billion in previously frozen funds to the mullahs in Tehran. Iran, of course, for a long time has been the major, the premier state sponsor of terror. The Iranians, as soon as they got their hands on that $6 billion, made a public statement saying that they were free to do whatever they wanted with the money. The Biden administration was saying, well, they're going to use it for humanitarian purposes. This is a theocratic terrorist regime. They never had any intention of using it for humanitarian purposes. Of course, it was going to go to terror. And now we are seeing the direct results of Joe Biden, Secretary Blinken, his entire foreign policy team, their move to release this money to Iran. And now within days, we have an absolute massacre happening on the ground to our key ally in the Middle East, Israel. We've got thousands of people who are either dead, wounded, or have been taken hostage. If you have seen some of the footage coming out of Israel, we've got Israeli citizens waiting for the bus to go to work, being shot dead in the street, being dragged out of their cars and shot dead and left to just uh, die in the street. These images are absolutely appalling. Uh, this is Israel's 9-11, and Joe Biden, Secretary Blinken, the entire Biden foreign policy team has that blood on their hands. You know, uh, Steve Moore, there's an uh, economic principle here, and the dumbheads in the White House don't understand it. Money is fungible. <laughs> so $6 billion for humanitarian aid can be spent or allocated for war. And terrorism. I mean, you know, when this story broke and they all talked about humanitarian aid, I said to myself, you are even stupider than I thought. Well, Larry, I, I can't add too much to uh, what you guys were just talking about with Monica, but I will say this, that, you know, there's also a much, an even bigger uh, kind of slush fund that the, that the White House has created, this $380 billion green energy slush fund which is not going to be used for improving the environment or combating climate change. It's going to be a, a fund that will um, basically put money into the hands of left-wing um, organizations that support the democratic agenda, whether it's green groups or whether it's solar panel companies or others. So, you know, when people say, gee, it's so hard to cut the budget. No, it's not. There's <laughs> there's so much waste. There's so much duplication. There's so much inefficiency in government that we could easily be cutting hundreds of billions of dollars a year out of this obese federal budget. Well, look at that that, that discussion on the budget. Um, I was going to get your opinion on Hillary Clinton, a great stateswoman that she is, who wants to deprogram people like you, right. Steve Moore. She wants to deprogram you. Uh, it's already bad enough that you're part of a basket of deplorables, but she now wants to deprogram you 
and your conservative budget and other MAGA opinions. Well, you know, right? I think are I'll you ready to be, be deprogrammed? Top of, top of that list. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, I'm a, I'm a deplorable. Are you, Larry? Mm. I know that Monica's a deplorable. So, well, I think well I'm more. working. I'm working so hard to be a deplorable, but now I, <laughs> I, I want. I'm going to be deprogrammed. I don't know how you do that. I mean, you have to go to a hospital, or, or, or well, she didn't really walk through how to execute that. This is what the the Soviets did. You know, when they <laughs> took over and and turned everyone into communists, they basically put people into you know, camps where they would basically um, indoctrinate them. And I think mm-hmm. that's what uh, what Hillary Clinton is sort of endorsing. It's really kind of reprehensible, actually, when you think about what she's saying. You know, Monica, Hillary's got a big mouth, but this is a recurring theme with her. If you don't agree with me, if you take a conservative position, you're a deplorable and you have to be deprogrammed and whatever, it all goes with that. I mean... It's it's interesting to you as it is to me. Her husband, Bill Clinton, doesn't say stuff like that. But she says stuff like that. I mean, she's really kind of a far-out radical, isn't she? Yes, and she has been her entire career. I have been studying Mrs. Clinton now for longer than I want to admit, or (laughs) I would like to get that part of my life back. Uh, I I, I will say this, you know, my my very first boss was former President Richard Nixon during the last years of his life. And he often said that in many cases, the women were far more radical than the men. And he said, you know, you just look at Chairman Mao, his wife, Madame Mao, was far more radical. And whether you're looking at fascists or communists, it, oftentimes the women are more radical than their husbands, significant others, or the men in the foxholes uh, with them. And I think in Mrs. Clinton's case, that is certainly the case. She has always been the far more radical, um, you know, of the two. Her husband actually governed as a pragmatic moderate, not mm-hmm. Barack Obama, but Bill Clinton. But the Democratic Party is no longer the party of her husband. It is the party of Barack Obama and the Marxist radicals. She is perfectly at home there because, remember, one of the very first things Mrs. Clinton uh, learned when she began her life as a political activist, she studied under Saul Alinsky, the original left-wing communist radical, right? So Mrs. Clinton has been steeped in this for a long time, and when she talks about uh, re-education, deprogramming, that language is dehumanizing, and she's saying it on purpose. This is what the radicals in this country really have an objective to do. And a lot I mean, of people yeah. laugh it off and think it's not possible, yeah. but it's already happening. Well, in the same week, this is so interesting to me, the Clintons. In the same week, all right, Bill Clinton goes on John Katsimatidis' radio right. show. right and criticizes Biden for his uh-huh. awful illegal immigration border policies and says, right. basically, you got to close the border. And then the same week, Hillary starts attacking, you know, all the so-called MAGA Republicans, whatever it is, to deprogram them, uh, presumably because they want to close the border, which is what her husband wants to do. I mean, mm-hmm. no wonder that they don't live together. No, no wonder <laughs> they don't get along. Well, I mean, she's you know, a crazy left-winger, and he's a perfectly sensible, mainstream, moderate, old-line Democrat. Right. And, and look, this is 
uh, Monica made a key point that the party of Bill Clinton and, and look, Bill Clinton was a moderate centrist mm-hmm. uh, Democrat. Remember, Larry, we could work with that guy. Remember, yeah. I mean, we, we cut yeah. the capital gains tax. We did welfare yeah. reform. Now, sometimes we had to drag him doing it, but mm-hmm. we accomplished a lot. The stock market went through the roof. We mm-hmm. saw the biggest reduction in federal spending under Clinton, of, you know, in 50 years. And so he was a practical Democrat. That They don't exist anymore. And one other quick point about what Hillary said. You know, we kind of make fun of it, and it's a laughable comment. But there, it, what it really reflects is a kind of elitism of the left, of the kind of they, the top 1%, that they, they think that they're morally and culturally and intellectually superior to working-class Americans. They do. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason. And Trump really tapped into that. That's why they hate Trump so much, because Trump is the candidate of working class, middle class Americans work 40 hours a day, get their hands dirty, uh, do the grunt work in this country. And those I love those people. But but Hillary and her clan have contempt for working class Americans. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, Monica. I mean, she's. She's always been that way. So she lost in 2016, and then she started talking about deplorables. Uh, David Asman was talking last night on the TV show. Her deplorable speech took the nomination away from her in 2020. The de- yep. Even the Democrats were horrified by that. And now here she goes again. And, you know, we were talking, it was a week or two back, we were talking about how Michelle Obama might be the presidential candidate. If Michelle Obama became the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton would jump off a cliff. She would go crazy. She'd go, absolutely, you are, you are she'd go, exactly right. she'd yeah, go out and kill herself know. because she couldn't stand it. Yeah, I mean it. Oh, no, 100%. You are exactly right. And like I said, I've been studying Mrs. Clinton for longer than I care to admit. And I will say that she has spent her entire life and career um, in service of one goal, which was to become president of the United States. Mm. So she subsumed herself to her husband, uh, multiple humiliations in their private life, everything else. Then she put herself on this track from law school to first lady of Arkansas to first lady of the United States to U.S. senator to secretary of state, all in service of that goal. And her deal with her husband was uh, two for the price of one. You go first and then it'll be my turn. And the fact that she lost the presidency not once but twice to two men who had a better sense of where the American people were at any given moment, number one, Barack Obama in 2008, and number two, Donald Trump in 2016. The fact that she has lost her life's goal both times to two different men has her absolutely embittered and incensed. And while we're talking about, you know, her comment about the deplorables and everything else, she did do something else uh, that was even more dangerous, and the country is still suffering the ramifications, and that is the Russia hoax. The oh, Russia yes, hoax the Russia came hoax. out of the diseased yep. mind of Mrs. Clinton yes. and her campaign, yes. and we're suffering the fallout to this very day. I mean, basically, we've we got to take a break. Steve, mm-hmm. she, she's a left-wing Democrat, and Bill Clinton is a moderate Republican. That's really what you got going. Well, that's true, and I know we're going to take a break, but I just—I don't want this just to be about Hillary Clinton. This is where the Democratic Party is today. She just spoke something that a lot of Democrats probably would be afraid to say, 
but I think a lot of them agree with her. Well, I want to know where to get the operation. Anyway, uh, Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, his radio show, More Money, and Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and host of the Monica Crowley Podcast. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. We are talking money and politics with Monica Crowley, former Assistant Treasury Secretary and host of the Monica Crowley Podcast, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the radio host of More Money on WABC Radio. Steve Moore, simple question, who's going to be the next Speaker of the House? Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, look, I, th- I think um, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are fantastic people, and they would both be excellent, um, you know, excellent uh, speakers. I-, I-, I do feel that what's happened this past week has been really unfortunate, and I think it's been bad for the party, and I know I think you feel the same way, Larry. And so, I, I mean, I just I think it's it's been unfair. I think it's at a time. Here- here's my point about this, Larry, and-, and I just want people to understand what's going on here. Yes, we have a massively out-of-control debt, and spending is out of control, and it's caused inflation, all sorts of problems for Americans. The villain here is not Kevin McCarthy. The villain is Joe Biden. And I just feel like we've taken our eye off the ball. Republican uh, approval ratings have fallen in the last four days because people are disgusted by what's happened. Mm. Um, uh, I was talking to Brett Baer earlier in the show, and I asked him about all this. And he felt that Jim Jordan had the upper hand now yeah, because former I think so. President Trump endorsed him. You agree? I do. You do agree? Yeah. Do you think anybody else can come into the race, Steve? Well, Donald Trump could. <laughs> um, but, um, look, I, 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 the, the danger right now that I'm hearing, Larry, is that um, the moderates – of the party, you know, there are maybe 15 or 20, you know, more moderate Republicans in the House, and they've seen what, you know, what, uh, what happened when you know, Gates and others on the right rebelled. And now they're going to, they could hold the, the caucus hostage, Larry, mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to go for Scalise. We're not going to go for Jordan. They're too conservative. I, I, there's a chance we may have a hard time getting 218 votes for anybody. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's an important point. I mean, uh, the, co- the conference may be split, and um, nobody can get 218. They may, they, I don't know, there may be a compromised candidate. Monica, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you have any preferences on this, Monica Crowley? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see President Trump with the speaker's gavel for, you know, a limited amount of time. <laughs> um, the, the, the idea that, you know, a speaker Trump would have to tell all of the judges in his bogus harassment cases around the country that he can't make court because he's presiding over Biden's impeachment would be a moment too delicious <laughs> to uh, let go. Okay? So I, I wonder, by the way, that. I wonder if the pre- if, uh, if Donald Trump could serve as president and speaker of the House at the same time. <laughs> you know, t- trouble is he's got a, he's got a very crowded schedule because – He's got to defend $18 million Mar-a-Lago, which is probably worth a billion and a half. <laughs> right, right. It's all so absurd. So, no, Donald Trump is not going to be the speaker. He did endorse Jim Jordan. That was a very important 
uh, endorsement. So as of the moment, but of course anything could change, it's also fluid. Uh, but it does look like Jordan has the edge. Steve Scalise is a wonderful guy. Um, but to Steve's point about, you know, the moderates might want to rebel, the moderates are not where the Republican base is. The Republican base, and, you know, we can argue whether or not the Matt Gates-led rebellion here was wise or not. I supported Gates in this. I disagree with both of you. I think the country cannot go on like this, and we need this kind of disruption to change the trajectory of what is expected of our leaders here. But the Republican base is where Matt Gates is. It's not where the Republican moderates are. So if they want to try to pull this and deny the speakership from Jim Jordan, it is not going to be a very pretty scene yeah. for them. Well, well you know, to, Steve, to I'm, not, I'm not going to I'm not going to comment on a defense of, of Matt Gates, but I'll I'll just leave that one out there. Uh, but one thing's for sure. Kevin McCarthy was a phenomenal fundraiser, and they are losing that capacity. Yeah. And that is so important. You know, I mean, you're going to have to. I mean, Steve Scalise is better at it probably than Jim Jordan, but really, McCarthy was a superpower fundraiser. Yeah. And that's a troubling aspect that uh, deserves some attention in this. And that's, Larry, that's a big part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you're yeah. the chief fundraiser yeah. for the part, and you can't, you can't win races without money. But I want to just expand on something that uh, Monica said, because, uh, you know, we disagree on, on this, but, you know, I wrote a piece in our hotline uh, Tuesday just saying I thought that this was a big mistake and we've got to keep our eyes on Biden, not McCarthy. He's not the problem. And I got a, just a torrent of... People say, oh, Steve Moore, you become part of the swamp. My point is people out there in Main Street America are absolutely stressed out. They're furious about what's happening in Washington. And I don't think either party is very attentive to how angry Americans are of what's happened to our government. Mm-hmm. Monica, do we have to have more debates? I mean, <laughs> can we dispense with the rest of these debates and... Just get on with it. it. That's a very good question, and it's a question for Ron and McDaniel at the RNC. Apparently, there's going to be at least one more debate uh, next month in Miami. Um, it remains to be seen. Is that going to be gonna, with or without Trump? It's going to be it without. It's going to be with or without Trump. I mean, he would certainly qualify. I don't know how many of the other GOP candidates will qualify if they tighten up some of the uh, criteria to get on that stage. But, you know, it's generally a waste of time. I mean, you know, I guess it's okay for the American people to see GOP candidates talking about important issues about the economy, pro-growth economic agenda, foreign policy. However, that last debate was not not in the history of GOP debates was not one of their finest hours. Um, so that ended up being counterproductive, I think, not just for the candidates, but for the party. Donald Trump is now leading by 40, 50, and some polls 60 points. So for all intents and purposes, this primary is over. And I think the party needs to uh, unify and get behind Donald Trump, get all of the resources aligned behind him, because the battles he is facing, the battles America First is facing, need everybody's concentrated attention. 
You know, but Steve. You know, uh, there is a debate I really do want to see, Larry, and it's coming up in November, and I think all Americans should watch it. And that is this debate that looks like it's going to happen between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. And this will be a red state versus blue state because uh, this is what the election is really about. Do you want America to look more like more like California or Florida? Well, and this I, is what this is what DeSantis for, for DeSantis should have run on this. DeSantis should have run on this the whole time, but. Alas, he didn't. Anyway, Monica Crowley, thank you, love. Steve Moore, thank you, love. Appreciate it very much, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we will be back next weekend.